For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we started our look last week. We uh, did an introduction to the context of 2 Corinthians because I felt it was important. This letter has some unique properties to it. Relationally between Paul and his audience, um, this book um, is one of Paul's most intimate and personal letters. So we spent time talking about the unique circumstances of 2 Corinthians, that Paul is having difficulties. He's at tension with these people, um, that the city of Corinth was sort of renowned for its immoral behavior. And so when people started coming to believe in Jesus Christ in the midst of this city, they brought all that past and all of that uh, complication of immoral living with them. And that doesn't necessarily change overnight when God comes into your lives. You have baggage. You have things and experiences and habits that still tend to play into your life. And so that's what's happening in the church in Corinth is they're being Corinthians. And as they come to grow in Christ, they are changing and their lives are changing in a powerful way, but they're also struggling in some key areas. And Paul has written in 1 Corinthians a letter that was kind of hard for them to take. He was speaking the truth in love. He had spent a year and a half with these people, investing himself deeply in them. But when they start getting drunk on communion wine and letting the poor starve, and when they start uh, taking each other to court and having inward battles about which of them is uh, uh, connected to the greatest apostle, he writes to them and he's like, knock it off. This is bad for you. Our unity, our connectedness with one another is part of the heart of who we are and how we demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ. And when you go and you live just like everyone else is living, it ruins our opportunity for people to see what God is like by drawing near to us. And so he takes them on in a pretty tough way. And apparently they didn't appreciate that too much that there was a mixed response, but the word got back to Paul that you know, they, were, they were upset and people were starting to make accusations against Paul about his character, about his, uh, his right to be an apostle and his authority. And that often happens when, when people get into conflict like this, when someone speaks the truth, even in love, one of the options we always have is to try to kill the messenger to discredit what they're saying and therefore not have to look at the realities of what's going on in our own hearts. So after being there for a year and a half, Paul headed out to Ephesus. He was there for a very short time and then he returned to Antioch and then he came back to Ephesus after that and he was in Ephesus for almost three years. And we think it's from Ephesus he wrote 1 Corinthians. But in the book of Acts, Chapters 18 and 19, what we see is something really bad and difficult happened in Ephesus. After he had been there preaching and teaching in the school of Tyrannus and helping this incredible movement of God to take hold in this new pagan city, a movement, a riot erupted within the city because the ministry of Paul was having such an impact in that city that it was affecting the economy of the pagan worship at the temple of Artemis. And so people in Corinth are calling Paul into question. He is now on the run, and he had to flee Ephesus because of the riot that was started there. And we see that Paul is now writing this after that has happened, and he's hurting. He's looking at his circumstances and the, the results of his faithfulness to God, and he's undergoing a great deal of suffering. He says in our passage this morning, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Asia in the ancient world is a part of Turkey. Turkey would be a part of Asia, and uh, Ephesus would be a part of Asia in the, in, the, in the way that the ancient world counted Asia. So he says, we, want you, we don't want you to be unaware of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, 
so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. And so we see Paul's being very open with them about his present circumstances. He's having a hard time and he wants them to know why things are getting so difficult and what his attitude toward the Lord is as things go that way. Despite all the things that are happening, despite all the pressures and all the conflict and all the tension that Paul is in, he wants them to know how confident he is in God's faithfulness. He starts the letter this way. He says in in verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have our memory verse for this week, if you did the scripture typer, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Yes, it does seem a bit like a tongue twister and an awkwardly worded way of saying this. But the words are so powerful and so important. This is not a man who's sitting on a lavish couch having servants bring him drinks, who's saying that God is the God of all comfort. This is a man on the run whose sole reasons for the suffering in his life are because of his faithfulness to God's call. And yet somehow, in the midst of all of this, he's able to declare, thanks be to God, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in any affliction. Paul's following God here, but he doesn't sound too comfortable. Later in 2 Corinthians, as he's continuing to try to prove his credentials, that he does in fact have spiritual authority and they should listen to him, he goes through a list of some of his adventures and some of the problems that he's faced as an apostle. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, 23, I more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea. Dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things as the daily pressures on me because of the concern that I have for you. Who wants to be a leader for Jesus Christ? Where do I sign up? I mean, shipwrecked, snake, snake bit, you know. How does Paul have this extraordinary confidence? This is the same guy who says God is the God of all comfort. His life is not a comfortable life. But he believes in what he's doing, and he is able to receive comfort from the Lord in the midst of the worst kinds of circumstances that you and I can imagine. In fact, he calls his suffering later in our book in 2 Cor 4, 17. He says, this is momentary light affliction. <laughs> uh, he's crazy. Right? momentary light affliction, he says, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And we begin to see a hint 
of how he is able to have this perspective because he doesn't take his circumstances and compare them to everyone else's circumstances. He takes his circumstances and he compares them to what he knows God will bring about as a result of his suffering. That he is suffering for a reason and the reward The eternal reward, not only in his life, but in other people's lives, is so vast that this incredible amount of suffering seems like a small price to pay. That's the perspective that we need to really zero in on here and say, how can I get some of that? Because I know that we're suffering. I know that we have things, all of us, going on in our lives. But do we see God as the God of all comfort? That's the question. You know, I spent some time reflecting. What are the ways that we see God in the midst of suffering? Just speaking for myself, there's a a whole spectrum of things. Is God a person to go to to find comfort? Is that where we're naturally drawn? Suffering comes and we go, Jesus, help me to withstand this. I need you right now, oh Lord. Uh, sometimes, but not very often probably. That, that's definitely not. Uh, I, I hope to maybe get there in a process when I start suffering, right? But that's not like the default uh, first knee-jerk reaction, you know, when suffering comes. That's more likely my first reaction is, God, why have you forsaken me? How could you let this happen to me? Oh, you want this to happen. I get it. I'm prideful. I'm arrogant. I need breaking. So now we have to go through this. Thank you, Lord. You're so giving and gracious, especially when it comes to suffering in my life. Right? That is more of a typical go-to reaction. Or we think that God is indifferent to our suffering. we like, we're on our own. I mean, I believe in God, and I believe that he is real, but he must not be aware, he must not be paying much attention to what's going on in my life, because if he was good, he would not let these things be happening like this. He doesn't care. Or, maybe he's the taskmaster who wants you to perform and doesn't care anything for you. He just wants you to serve. And he gives you no promises of protection. I just want you to do my will. And he's like some kind of evil slave driver. Certainly not the God of all comfort. Or maybe when we suffer, we see God as someone to avoid. Because he's just going to come along and make your suffering even worse by giving you some kind of moral lecture about how this is good for you. Right? You ever have that happen where it's like, you know, you're in the midst of suffering and you see someone coming and you're like, oh, I do not want to talk to them right now because they are just going to have some, you know, platitude, you know, well, you just need to love Jesus more. And you're like, (laughs) can't you see that I'm suffering? Right. Or what about this? When we suffer, we see God as being obligated to keep us for suffering. God. I'm on your team. I mean, if you want me to continue to work for you, God, then you gotta, you got to give me some blessing here. you got to make things cut my way, Lord, a little bit. I mean, you owe me that. That's pretty normal. That's a pretty normal way of thinking, especially for spiritual people like so many of you who are so dedicated, who are so engaged in so many ways to seeing God's purposes accomplished, not only in your lives, but in the lives of your family and your friends and your neighbors. This actually is is a very Xenos thing, a terrible, terrible sin that we commit is because we tend to be so actively engaged, we say, you know, God, I will do all these things and you just keep me from getting cancer. That sounds reasonable. You keep my kids from harm. That sounds reasonable, right? God, you're a reasonable God. I will do all of these things. You just do X, Y, and Z for me, and we will be good, right? And so when the suffering comes, it's so easy to shake our fist at him and say, this was not what I signed up for. 
And Paul somehow, in the midst of all this suffering, doesn't have those reactions. He says, God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in any affliction so that we will be able to comfort others. The circumstances Paul is in is he is burdened excessively beyond his strength so that he despaired even of life. He's sitting there and he was like, oh, I wish that I could die. And he's like, and it was convenient because we had been given a death sentence. So the world and us were in agreement on that point. It was time for me to go. And yet, in the midst of that circumstances, he says, God is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. His circumstances and suffering drive him into deeper intimacy with the God of the universe. And that is an incredible thing that can happen in the midst of suffering. But how do we get there? How did Paul get there? He wasn't born that way. He's not just like a well-tempered guy who, I mean, this guy, you know, uh, not a good man. You know, his past, his history, it's not like he's just like this incredible, you know, Mother Teresa-like figure who just appears out of nowhere and just starts blessing everyone. He was a murderer, a persecutor, a self-righteous judger. And yet, God transformed him into somebody who could withstand all of that. And the accusation of the church at Corinth and the people at Ephesus and all these things at the same time and say, God is amazing. I want you to know how amazing God is and how great it is to be a part of his plan for you. How do you... How do you acquire such fortitude? Well, he gives us four things that we can look at in our passage this morning. The first thing is, is that he has the confidence in the character of God. Say what you will about Paul, but before he was Paul, he was Saul, and he was a Hebrew scholar. He was raised on the passages of the Old Testament who are filled with wisdom on who God is, true understanding of God's nature. And one thing that Paul would have understood at least theologically before he even became a Christian, he would have understand that God again and again and again demonstrates in the scriptures his knowledge and understanding of our suffering and his desire to be a comfort to us in the midst of it. Psalm 19.2 says, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress... My God in whom I trust. Psalm 46, 1 through 3, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling. God is our comfort. Isaiah the prophet would write, For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. That's such a cool picture where he's saying, you know, I'm being persecuted, and the breath of the ruthless, they're trying to destroy me, and it's like that sound of rain on the roof, and you're not getting wet because you know that you have shelter. You're our shelter. That's the way that men and women have drawn near to God throughout history and as they have understood this incredible component of his nature, of who he is, they found comfort in the midst of the most horrific circumstances. He knows that God is sovereign, meaning that he is powerful enough to do something, that nothing is outside of his control, and that defeats one of the biggest lies we want to believe, right? This whole situation of this pain in my life is so chaotic, nothing can be done. And God says, uh, creator of the universe, Alpha and Omega, that whole thing, I can, I can be involved here. And I want to be involved here. 
We see that in what we already read here in 2 Corinthians 1, 9 through 10. He says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust even in ourselves. But we can trust in God who raises the dead and who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope. You see what he says? He's like, you know, there's this raging torrent of people that are moving up against us. And then I remembered, oh yeah, God who raises people from the dead. If he has the power to do that, then I think maybe he has the power to handle my circumstances. And I think if he wants me to dead, I'll be dead. And if he wants me to be alive, then I'll be alive. And if he wants me to do both, he can do that too. He is sovereign enough that I can trust him in the midst of my circumstances. One of the things that really freaks us out when we're suffering is that feeling of helplessness, that feeling of chaos. We don't know what's going to come next. But if you know that God is in charge, then you can have confidence that it may not be easy, but it will be under control, under the control of God. Another thing that Paul really understands here and that we see through this passage is Paul really understands the ways that God uses suffering. As someone who's suffered continually, he's had a lot of opportunity to see the results of suffering. And he looks at this and he's, he's remembering the ways that he suffered in the past and how worth it, it was. And that's one of the things that about, about suffering, I find this in my life and I've seen this in many other people's lives that when they suffer, you know, it has a way of just moving away all the lies that we believe. The Bible says that we live in something called the world system, the cosmos. And that this system is designed to distract us from what really matters. That it gets us chasing after money and sex and power, comfort, and then we all spend our times, you know, thinking, well, if I just have a little bit more of X, then I will finally be there. But it is a carrot that we constantly chase that we can never catch. And all of a sudden, suffering comes into our lives, and we have to start asking questions like, why aren't I spending more time with my children? Why am I doing these things? Suffering, even, you know, life-endangering suffering has this way of just making it really clear because as you look death in the eye and you're filled with regret and fear, all you can think about is how you would do things differently if you just got one more day or one more week or one more year or a second chance. And that is a very cleansing, that's spring cleaning for your soul when that happens. It just moves out all that crap that's been accumulating there for years and really brings you down to a bare bones perspective of what you really care about. It certainly can teach us dependence on him when facing difficult circumstances and suffering. We, can, we are forced then in the helplessness of our situation to throw up our arms and say, I am like a child in the middle of a hurricane. Only you can save me, God. Only you. Would that we could have the same kind of dependence on God in our normal life circumstances that we often find that we're able to have in the midst of suffering. And it prepares us, it says, to be compassionate towards others. God will actually use your suffering, as horrible as it may be, in the worst possible ways, the most unjust ways that you have suffered. You are now equipped uniquely to bring comfort to others who are going to suffer in the same way. I've got a friend I want to bring up this morning. He's my co-leader in my home church. So he's a guy that um, I've got a front row seat to his life. We're good friends, and we, leave, we lead a, a home group Bible study together. And his name's Jim White. And lately, for the last year and a half or so, that front row seat of his life that I've had has been a, a show in suffering. And uh, this is a guy who is a great leader, a great discipler, who's a great giver. He's fully committed to the Lord's way in his life. And he has suffered. And I asked him to come and share his story with you this morning so that he could help put a point on this. Well, why don't you guys welcome up Jim White for me. Well, thanks. I, um, 
you know, it, it was interesting to think about coming up here because, you know, I've had some medical problems in the last year and a half, and that's what he's, he's referring to. And, and I felt like, you know, I, I wouldn't doubt that there's uh, many people in this room that, you know, have, have suffered medically probably more than I have. Um, you know, Ryan just gets to hear me whine about it a lot more and, and instead of you, so he asked me to talk about it. But, uh, uh, you know, th th this is just my story and, and what I've kind of... It it's interesting, those three points he had up there, uh, you know, I thought to myself, did I tell him that? Because that is exactly how I would sum up uh, those last three bullets of, of what this has been like. Um, let me start at the beginning. Uh, I'm, I, a year and a half ago, I was 42 years old. I'm a nurse at Ohio State. I live uh, north campus, ride my bike to work every day. In fact, you know, like most you know, guys, I have a competition with a friend uh, who, you know, we, 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 we swore that we would ride our bikes to work every day, and the first person that doesn't do it has to pay $100 and... And all this, you know, so it's been, it, it went on for three years. We didn't miss one day, regardless of weather, all those icy mornings, sub-zero. Three solid years uh, we went. And you couldn't get out of it for any reason. I mean, even if you were killed on your bike, <laughs> your partner had, the, the, the other guy had 90 days to go to the widow to collect the money, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I'm a pretty active guy, you know, 42 years old, young, you know, I, I'm riding my bike home from work one day, and I get to a certain hill, and I was an ER nurse for years, and, and I'm, I get to a certain uh, level of intensity, and I start getting this chest pain. And um, whenever I would slow down, it would go away. Whenever I would speed up, it would come back. I mean, the, the, the very question I ask every chest pain patient I've ever seen, I'm having. And the nurse in me knows what it is, but the man in me is like, well, it's, the air's cold. I'm breathing in cold air. Maybe it's that thing. And uh, the next day, the exact same thing. Same hill, same pain, repeatable. It's like what you're really supposed to look out for as a, as a man in this country is that very thing. Third day, same thing. And I'm like, I better see somebody about this. I went to see my doctor who sent me to see a cardiologist the next day. The cardiologist looks me over and goes, I, I really, you know, I you know you have bad family history and this, this is pretty concerning. I have to do a test, but I, I think I'll probably never see you again. So I go to uh, ride my bike to uh, the <laughs> stress test. And some of you may have had these. <laughs> And I get there, and, um, you know, you're running on a treadmill, and you're hooked up, and, you know, the technician is someone I know because I work there, and I usually start IVs for them. And we're having a nice conversation, and, we're, and you know, the, the pain comes on while I'm running on the treadmill, and, and I look over at the tech, and I say, is there, you seen anything on there? And she's like, I'm going to have the doctor talk to you. And, um, the, you know, the next thing you know, the resident and the doctor are staring at this thing for a long time and whispering, whispering, and I'm really know what's coming, and, and she turns around and says, you're going you're gonna to need a heart cath. Um, and I go, I'm like, when? And she's like, you're going down right now. And uh, so I go down, and uh, they go in and find that I am 90% occluded in what's called the Widowmaker, the um, left anterior descending artery, and, and uh, it's not good. I get a big stent there, and uh, now I'm a heart patient for the rest of my life. And uh, but, but when I came out of that, I was in the recovery area, and there was a moment where I started feeling real bad and ended up going, passing out, and, and my heart paused for 22 seconds with my pregnant wife in the room. <laughs> no nurses, nobody else there. Luckily, there was no one there. They would have done CPR probably, but, but by the time people got in, I came back. And uh, so... Two kids, one was six at the time, the other four, and the third one in the, my wife's belly uh, at the time. So, so that, that was very emotionally, there was some suffering after that. Um, that's the, the, the start of all this. And then because of that, because I'm on these blood thinners now, I uh, spent uh, about two months ago, I had a, a necessary different surgery that was kind of minor in, in the beginning and uh, because of these blood thinners I'm on it caused a lot of internal bleeding and, and a, a, a substantial hematoma it's called 
that caused some suffering that I've never experienced. I, I had no category for the pain that, that would come from that. And, and that type of stuff where you're laying on, on the couch and your kids have to see you wailing and crying and, and uh, suffering for a long time and wondering why you can't play with them. And I spent weeks on my back and um, eventually uh, had to have surgery to have that removed. And then that also caused some changes that will probably affect me for the rest of my life. So um, that's my story. Uh, there's been, um, uh, the thing about it is, though, um, is w what it's done for me. And I, and I, and I talked to, uh, this is very current, this is very new, and still working through a lot of this, but those points that Ryan talked about were so uh, r right on. Um, the first thing is, is when he talked about, it, it showed me, clar it brought clarity to what matters. The Lord used this. In, in uh, such a way, and I would say that the biggest thing with that was that it just immediately showed me how temporary everything was. I spent 42 years healthy. I never lost a parent yet. You know, no close family members. I haven't suffered. And immediately, all I realized is, is just how temporary everything is, is around me. And uh, for me, it, it wasn't even for my own life because I consider myself someone that at least on a macro level has decided to follow the Lord and I'm going to walk. I may struggle. I may have uh, tough times. I may get distracted. I may, um, but on a macro level, I've decided. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, what about these kids? Um, and, and, and for me, it, uh, all I knew uh, was, Wow. Uh, I need to be really serious about one thing, and that is uh, training and teaching them to glorify the Lord. And uh, there's so many ways that we do that, but at the end of the day, if my kids show up to heaven and they have glorified God in this life, then all that is, is worth it. And uh, that, that that happened to me, uh, that it gave me a, a more of a focus, uh, was totally worth it. The other thing he said is uh, that it teaches us dependence on him. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you, I don't, you know, I know a lot of people here are following the Lord, but I can tell you what, it's something that I've decided to do with my life is to pursue him. And the, and the type of Christian worker I am, I would say, you know, the Lord's over here. Hey, Jim, why don't we spend some time together? And it's like, hang on, I'm busy serving the Lord. <laughs> I got this. Hey, why don't you spend some time with me? Let's talk. Go, wait, wait, wait. I'm serving God. I'm doing Christian ministry. I'll get with you later. Because um, that's hard. I don't understand that. But I'm out here working and doing busy. And, 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 I'm, and I'm doing it on my own. And uh, he really uh, used that to show me where I need to come for that power. And uh, uh, boy, what a cool chance that was to spend with the Lord those six weeks on my back. And coincidentally, I was studying the book of Job at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and, but, but, but what really came from that, and, and the thing that I've come uh, in this area, the thing that's getting drawing in close to the Lord and the thing that he does is uh, he allows you to be smaller <laughs> and he gets bigger and it is such a blessing that that gym that's like, no, Lord, I don't have time for you, uh, gets to just calm down and just be smaller. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't know that I can explain that any better than saying that, but it is such a blessing when the Lord gets to grow in your life and gets to be in charge and gets to lead things and gets to be uh, aggrandized, and, and, and you just get to shrink back a little bit, and you just get to uh, be smaller, and, and, and it was so worth it. And then and the final thing he said... Um, uh, was that it prepares us to be compassionate because with this, the, the temporal nature of what we see around us, I mean, I did not, it wasn't like, oh man, I might die any minute now. Uh, I was afraid when I walked up here it would cause some sort of weird heartbeat and I would pass out in front of you guys. Uh, it, you, you know, when, you, when, when that's happened to you, you're like, this, this is really short. But I, I, I don't find myself being like, I haven't seen the Grand Canyon yet. I've never seen the Great Pyramids. Um, the, 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 the temporal nature uh, of this all just causes you to just want the things of God uh, when you follow him, just to want to have, to have impact. And the chance for me, who's a, you know, I'm a nurse. Uh, most nurses are gifted at compassion and mercy and empathy. That is not a strength of mine. 
And uh, if the Lord could use this, and, and already I've seen a huge change. Anytime I see a patient that went through what I went through, especially in the cardiac end of it, it's like I just feel drawn to talk to them, to tell them about the hope that I have, to, to give them an opportunity to, to not, you know, think that this is, uh, this is everything, that, that this is, you know, this is nothing. Uh, eternity is everything. What the, the things of God are, are for real. And uh, it's, it's, it's worth it all. So hopefully that helps illustrate his point. Thanks for listening. That experience of hearing the Lord call you that time and, and say, let's spend some time together. And you're like, I will and I want to, God, but I've got this, these ways I'm going to serve you over here right now and I'll make time for you eventually, and then you suffer, and that turns into, God, I'm not going to make it through today unless I get some time with you. That reality is the true reality of every day. That's the truth that we see. But we're blinded by our pride and our, and our independence and our desire to be our own God, or whatever all these other things are, so that we live most of our days, and I'm speaking really of myself here, most of my days are spent in my own strength. But when suffering comes, then all of a sudden it's like, oh Lord, I need you, you know? And when the suffering goes away, that truth doesn't change, just my interaction with it. And that's a powerful way that God uses suffering. Again, we go back to what we memorized this week. The God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort others. He wants us to experience it from him, but then he wants us to be givers to others. The third truth that Paul understood is that God has willingly suffered injustice for our benefit. And it's so important that we understand this when we <laughs> suffer. Because that whole thing, that whole idea where we run around and we say, oh God, if you were good, you would never let this happen to me. Why do bad things happen to good people? God can't be good and powerful and let injustice happen. And God's answer to that is, I'm the best there is the most righteous, perfect being in the universe. I'm the most powerful being in the universe. And I have suffered more injustice than anyone. When he came in the person of Jesus Christ, it's not as though God stands aloof at the chaos of the human condition and he looks down at all the pain and suffering here and he says, oof, that's got to hurt. It's that he left the abode of the heavenlies, took on flesh and blood, experienced birth and hunger and sleepiness and all the indignities of the body. He was raised and experienced rejection. He knew what it was like to be bullied Falsely accused, betrayed, <clears throat> beaten, humiliated, and finally hung naked on a cross where he would take all the wrath and all the punishment that we deserve for all the injustice that we have done and he would pour it out on himself and the person of Jesus Christ. It's so important when we suffer that we remember that God has suffered first and the most. That he understands unjust suffering. <clears throat> he became unjust suffering for our benefit. Let's look at 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24, which says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, 
who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. God is not a God who's indifferent to suffering, who's ignorant of suffering. He is a God who has suffered mightily for the purpose of reconciling himself to the human race. Hebrews 14, 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. It's talking about Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God sits on his throne on high and he says, come on in, my children. And when we come in, he invites us to boldly approach him and receive comfort as we suffer. The fourth truth that we see that Paul understands is that people are an important part of how God works to bring us comfort. It's not just a binary relationship, you and God, but it's you and God and his community, his church. That's the way that this relationship is supposed to work. Look at what he says, as estranged as he is, you know, think about this. They're bringing accusations against him. They're attacking him. You know, the last thing you'd want to do is be vulnerable and open with a people who are accusing you of being a faker. And he says to them, for we do not want you to be unaware of our affliction. He knows that he needs them to be praying for him. To be understanding of his circumstances. And so when we suffer, we must bring the community of Christ in and involve them so that we can have prayer support, so that we can have emotional support, so that you can have someone come alongside and put their arm around you and say, we will get through this together. We will stand whatever is needed to happen. We will do this together. And that's what God has provided for us in community. In the church. And that is who we're supposed to be, not only for each other, but also for those who don't know. And those who are outside and who have never experienced the comfort of God's love. Now, of course, groaning and complaining is counterproductive, right? We're not saying, you know, if you haven't told people enough times that you're suffering, then just wail louder and at a higher pitch right? But what we're saying is, is that suffering in silence is not spiritual. That is not God's way. Being real with one another and inviting people into the reality of our present circumstances is spiritual. Finally, when we see people growing as a result of our suffering in the context of community, it reminds us just as it reminded Paul of how worthwhile it is, how powerfully God can use our suffering. Think about Paul as he assesses his situation, and he calls God the God of all comfort. He's looking around, and he's saying, a year and a half at Corinth, and they hate his guts because he spoke the truth in love. Three years in Ephesus, and they've run him out of the city and threatened his life. It'd be real easy to look at that and say, why am I spending my time with these ungrateful people? But then he's able to look and see that thousands of lives have been changed in these cities. He's able to know that thousands of more lives will continue to change because he's not only seen people come to know Christ, but he's followed the Great Commission and he's begun making disciples who will be able to impart what they have learned to others and who will do the same and that there's a chain of events that's unfolding here that would change the world 
and that his suffering, as great as it seemed in the moment, was a catalyst that God was using to spread the gospel over the whole world. He wasn't even fully aware that this would be preserved the way that it was and used and that 2,000 years later we would still be benefiting from the moral lessons of Paul's suffering. But how many millions of people have benefited? And even without that knowledge, he says, compared to the eternal weight of glory, this is momentary light affliction. When I see people growing in their love and growing in the character when I see them being filled and made whole and bringing joy and peace and patience and comfort and truth into the lives of others, when I see the light of God beginning to shine brightly in the dark places, I'm fully aware of how minor my suffering is. Not to mention he talks about the hope that he has and the future that God has promised, that he, he views his suffering as a race. And he's running hard. And he's breaking down, and his body's falling apart, and his circumstances are crashing down upon him. But he sees that finish line, and he wants to cross that finish line, and he knows that Jesus is waiting there with open arms to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that God promises that when we finish that line, he'll wipe the tears from our eyes and give us a place to live with each other and with him in which there will be no pain, no suffering, no injustice, and no evil, only love and life together. And when he looks at that, he's like, this is momentary light affliction compared to that. Finally, he's able to do this because he knows that he's living a life that matters. How much more we are able to persevere when we know what we're doing makes a difference. And the only way you can know what you're doing makes a difference is if you're deeply connected into the lives of other people. I believe in the supernatural. I believe that God works miracles. I believe that God heals. I believe that he can move mountains if he so wishes. But I've never seen those things. What I have seen is broken people become whole. What I have seen as I look around this room is the miracle of your lives and the way that God has moved through your lives. And suffering has been a part of that but we will suffer more and we will suffer as much as needed if it means that we see people change the way you are changing. Because that's a miracle. It's a miracle to see God take such selfish people and turn them into such giving people. To see them take such angry people and turn them into such humble people. To see them take such greedy people and turn them into such generous people. That's the greatest miracle of our time. When God does that. And when we are together in community, we see that demonstrated in reality and we are able to persevere all that much more. He says in 2 Corinthians 2, 2 through 3, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad... Uh, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to, to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. He says, look, you and I, we're kind of alienated right now. And I'm planning on coming to see you. And when I do that, I want you to know that when I see you, my heart will fill with joy because I know how you've grown and I know what God is doing in your life. And yes, I've criticized you because you're not perfect and I've pointed out some things that really need to change in your life. But you bring me joy because of the power of God in your life. And the take home here is this. 
Let God into your suffering. He is the God of all comfort. He does not want to be outside of your world. He wants to be inside your world. And that begins by receiving Him as your personal Savior. An act of faith where you turn to Him in your heart and you say to Him, I need you, Jesus, in my life. I need your death to pay for my sins. And if you will turn to Him in a quiet moment right now, you can have an experience that will be the beginning of a great journey, of a great relationship with your heavenly Father, who is the God of all comfort, but who also has a plan for you and a way He wants to use you. He wants to help you fulfill the purpose for which you were created. He wants to fill that empty void in your heart, and then He wants to send you out into the world as a demonstration of His power. Will you do that? Please, if you do not know Jesus, invite him in now. For those of us who have done that and are walking with God like Jim was, and we're working through the circumstances of life and all the things that it holds, will you let your suffering be used to comfort others? Or will you go inward? Will you move away from God, move away from people, and just suffer in silence alone where God can accomplish nothing through your suffering? Or will you let the power of God's love break through and use you as a comfort to others? Let other people in to the real things, the very present suffering, and circumstances of your life because we do not want to be a fake community. We want to be God's church. Next time, we'll be in chapter 2 talking about loving discipline and authentic Christian community. Your scripture type or verse for this week is 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. If you're not following along in the app, you can just write that down. Um, but uh, we've had like over 100 people join that group and it's really cool. Uh, so um, please continue. The more scripture we memorize, the more God can work. So that's a great thing. You are the God of all comfort. And we just praise you, God, that you don't call us to comfortable lives. Uh, that's not your goal. Your goal is to call, call us to challenging lives. A life like you lived, a life of self-sacrifice, a life of service, a life of love, and a life of truth. And we know that that will put us into direct conflict with the world system, the cosmos that's designed to distract us and to dissuade us against all those things. And that that tension will cause suffering. Just by virtue of the fact that we live in a fallen world, we are vulnerable to all kinds of suffering but that you want to be there in the midst of each of those steps and that each of us will suffer and each of us one day will pass away, but to know that you are there holding our hands, encouraging us and inviting us home through that entire process is incredible. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.